come in big and solid. Now, sneak this in. Don't ever take it out. There we go. They expect every last mediocre drop of it. Oh, happy Friday the 13th to you. Happy Friday the 13th to you. Happy Friday 13th, January 1st, 1967 to you. Bad cess to you. Happy Friday 13th, out damn spot to you. Bring it up there, big. There you go. You notice a little Macbeth in there? not of rock or of narrow, and he gazes only on high. I doubt not the wave will devour the boat and the boatman ere long. And that was the Lorelei's power, and that was the Lorelei's song. Oh, happy Friday the 13th to you. Happy Friday 13th to you. And we will counter that little bit of poetry, which was 100 years old, with a little news note that opens up 1967 like a can of peas. Giuseppe Denti of Milano walked into a fire stationo Tuesday and he shouted in the fire station in Italiano, send me back to the asylum. All madmen are in the outside the world. Psychiatrists later examined him and said that Giuseppe Dante was sanissimo. He was totally sane. Yes, friends. You will never know the players without a scorecard. It has been said that one out of three people in this wild, mad world of ours are certifiably insane. Which leads us to question, what is insanity? And that leads, of course, to the next uh, conundrum. What is normality? It's Friday the 13th. Oh, yes. 
Under the linden, the music is gay. The couples are gossiping loudly, and two are dancing whom nobody knows. Oh, they carry themselves so proudly. Now here, now there, they glide and sway and wave like measures, beguiling. <laughs> they bow to each other, and as they nod, she whispers, gently smiling, A water pink is hanging from your cap, my fair young dancer. It grows only in the depths of the sea. <laughs> you are no mortal man, sir. You are a merman, and to lure these village maidens, your wish is, I knew you at once by your watery eyes and your teeth as sharp as the fishes. <laughs> oh, yes, now here, now there. They glide and sway in wave-like measures beguiling. They bow to each other, and as they nod, he answers, gently smiling. Oh, my lovely lady, tell me why your hand is so cold and shiny, and why the border of your gown is so damp and bedraggled and briny. I knew you at once by your watery eyes and your bow, so mocking, so tricksy. You've never a daughter of earth, my dear. <laughs> you are my cousin, the Nixie. And now the fiddles are silent. The dancing is done. They part with a ripple of laughter. They know each other too well and will try to avoid such a meeting hereafter. Yeah, That's it. Lay it down there. Lay it down there. Hold it there. Hold it there. You know, speaking about this business of Friday the 13th, which is upon us now, and the moon rides high. You know, I just wonder, I'm curious whether how many of you... In fact, I've, I haven't found many civilian types, you know. By, by civilian types, we mean non-showbiz types. Walking around. Today, the word civilian has come to mean that, you know. But, uh... Uh, I, I have not found many civilian types who really recognize what these peculiar things like, uh, say, Friday the 13th and or slash the full moon does to that great, murky, moiling, dark, somnolent world out there, that, that great, vast mass of walking around. That, 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 uh, what is it, you know? I was reading a thing by Eugene O'Neill, and Eugene O'Neill was describing why he used masks in certain plays, and he was defending and delineating and defining the whole idea of using masks in general in theatrical productions, you know, like the Greek masks, the mask of tragedy, the mask of humor, and the anonymous mask. And uh, O'Neill described the scene, an idea for a play that he had, which he never did, where the crowd itself was hero, the crowd was villain, the crowd was bum, the crowd was, uh, was all things in, in the world of drama. The crowd was protagonist, the crowd was chorus, but the crowd itself always wore a mask. And he had designed this anonymous mask that all the players in the crowd scenes wore. The mask that could be both villain and hero. The mask that could be both humor and sadness. It was the great crowd, the great moiling mass out there in the darkness, swirling like some 
force of nature. Have you ever thought of yourself as part of a force of nature? Like a molecule of water? Like a grain of sand? Like one star in the Milky Way? Just one anonymous piece of protoplasm in some fantastic, some gigantic, overwhelming, overpowering, unknowable, unseeable force of nature. Does the grain of sand understand Jones Beach? <laughs> does, uh, does, does that one drop of water that just came in to the salt flats just south of Southampton understand the Atlantic Ocean? Have you ever thought of yourself as one tiny jot in a fantastic force of nature? Under the control of, of uh, lines of energy over which you have no control. Over which you have absolutely no control. Not only no control, but no knowledge. Does, uh, does the drop of water in the Atlantic Ocean know of the tides and the pull of the moon? I doubt it. And so, so uh, uh, I, I've often wondered whether or not people who are outside of the civilian, who are in the civilian world, not in showbiz, uh, not at least in the kind of anonymous sort of showbiz, let's say that the precinct station police captains are in, <laughs> or uh, uh, people who hang around radio and television stations much, a kind of an anonymous showbiz. Where you have this this great uh, just let it go into the next cut. You don't have to read. Uh, just distribute right on across. That's all. This uh, this kind of thing where there is a contact with the outside world, but not really. Do you know what happens when the full moon hangs over Manhattan to the switchboards? Do you? Are you aware of that? Very few people are, and they think it's a superstition. You know that the full moon somehow plays a strange role in the part, the life, uh, the, the uh, orbit of many people walking around the streets, otherwise looking like accountants, otherwise looking like ladies who work at Bloomingdale's in the notions department, or the place where they sell the pink ribbons, or maybe where they fit shoes on the go-go girl's feet. And what part does the moon play in the life of these people? I question whether they know. All we know is that on nights like uh, the night of the full moon, the strange enigmatic calls rise like some wave in some nameless forgotten sea, some uh, sargasso ocean somewhere, carrying dead weeds and bits of old kelp and strange jots of cork from ancient lost life preservers of some forgotten shipwreck somewhere. And the calls rise like a crescendo. And without even consulting a calendar, we know it's the first it's the first day of the full moon. Oh. And all over the city, all over the country, all over the world, wherever the full moon is really full, precinct captains begin to get these wild cries for help. These wild complaints from out of the dark corners of the human soul. And they know it's the full moon. And that great silver moon rides high. I'm curious whether or not the full moon will affect an astronaut. I mean, you know, it's so close. <laughs> I mean, even a, an ordinarily sane astronaut, he lands on 
let's say, the Sea of Sorrows. How about some of those great names they have for places on the moon? The Sea of Sorrows. That's a good one. The Sea of Storms. That's another good one. The Sea of Tranquility. Of course, man named these seas. I don't know what people who live on the moon would call it, or whether we'd care. I wonder how, how we would go about explaining to the residents who live on Mars that they're living on Mars when we get there. And they think they're living somewhere else. That they have not called it Mars, or never will call it Mars. Or couldn't conceive of anyone ever calling it Mars. How could we explain it to them that they're living on Mars? Just a thought. I wonder. I wonder when uh, when the first uh, when the first explorers began to arrive from the old world and touched down the new. I wonder how they got it across to the first Indians that came creeping out of the dark green forest that they were living in the new world. I wonder how that went over with the Potawatomis or the Shoshones. I wonder <laughs> how that went over with the Ogunquits. For fifteen thousand years, they've been sitting on their haunches chewing on buffalo steaks and looking at the riding high silver moon. And now they are asked to accept the premise that they are living in the new world, that these men wearing breastplates and carrying muzzleloaders have come from the old. And just a you know, <laughs> philosophical question. Oh, speaking of savages sitting around and chewing on uh, buffalo bones, do you have a uh, a little uh, whoopee in there for us, a little transcribe whoopee of some kind. you have a little thing in there? Yes, sir, that's my baby. No, sir, don't mean maybe. That's better, that's better. Oh, yeah, yeah, what about that? You know, I, I, I think that, uh, that there's just two kinds of people who believe in magic. And if you're interested, Doug, since you're involved in radio, I think there's two kinds of people who believe in magic. I think, I know, hon. Um... I think, <laughs> Lord, uh, let's get it out of the way. I, I've done it once, so we'll do it again. This is W.O.R. New York. I didn't do it. I thought you knew. I thought you could tell by the mealy sound coming out of your loudspeaker where you were. We have our own sound here, you know. Uh, but uh, be that as <laughs> a matter, <laughs> she lost her sense of humor tonight. Uh, let's see, what do we got here? Uh, while on the subject of losing your sense of humor, friends, we have, uh, have you ever heard WORFM? Well, for those of you who haven't, we would like to suggest that you, uh, <laughs> you <laughs> if you really want to hear it the way it really sounds, I mean, with the, with the scratchy guitars and all that stuff, we would suggest that you find out about the KLH-21, a magnificent new FM receiver by the KLH people. And they sent me a little poll that says, uh, for those of you who may be familiar with the earlier KLH Model 8 FM radio, it's worth pointing out that the 21, at half the price and just over half the size of the earlier vacuum tube model, is at least its equal in every aspect of performance, including the music power output of 3.5 watts. This is the, uh, good morning. Speaking of people with 3.5 watts output, I see Mario's just come in. How are you, Dad? How does it feel to be a, a to be a mini watt amplifier in the world of kilowatts, Mario? <laughs> it's awful, you know, to put out a sine wave in the world of square waves too. You know, I go great for lucid view figures. I saw one in front of the uh, chock full of nuts down here on Broadway a couple of minutes ago. Fantastic. I mean, what is a lucid view figure? Is a lucid view figure a Greek girl 
Or is it an Italian chick? Or, uh, uh, <laughs> or is it Kirchhoff's... Uh, that's another story. Let's get back to, to uh, KLH 21 here. If you have not heard this magnificent piece of FM gear, I would like to recommend you do so. It's about the size of a shoebox, by the way, and it's sealed. Totally sealed. Nobody can open up the back and fool around with it. And it comes complete with a two-year unconditional guarantee. Great sound. And uh, I own the KLH-8, and I also own a KLH-21. The one thing I notice about the 21 that's interesting, uh, and, and, and by the way, this is not, the commercial is over. Or one more note, if you want to see this KLH, you can see it at the electronic workshop at 26 West 8th Street. And uh, that is also, by the way, uh, you can see it at the number you can call. They'll, they'll fix it up. It's Gramercy 30140. One more thing I want to say here about uh, KLH and the uh, 21. Do you know that what you, the way you can tell, the way you can test high-fidelity equipment, do you know much about hi-fi, Doug, at all? Well, the way, you can, the way you can really give a test of hi-fi equipment is how it, per, how it performs at very low volume. You know, most people think the way you tell good equipment is how it works when you've got the volume or the gain turned all the way up. It's exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. And the thing that I've noticed about the 21 is that of all the equipment I've ever used, this is an interesting test if you want to try it. Uh, in fact, try it on any receiver that you happen to be around. I'm not, again, I, I, this is not part of a commercial. I want to repeat this, that you can tell any equipment that you want to try at very low volume. Now take the receiver that you're listening to me on now and try turning it all the way down to the point where you can hardly hear me and then see how intelligible and see how, uh, how can I say, how lifelike it is at that gain, at that volume. Now I've seen some equipment that is absolutely eerie, among them the, the 21. I remember trying this thing with it practically turned off in a room. So the gain turned up so slightly that the knob was hardly off of zero. And you, you could hear the highs and the lows. It's very eerie. And uh, this is a, a really acid test of hi-fi equipment. Let's say we had Miller, Rover. Uh, another thing, you know, incidentally, that's also a test of automobiles. Are you aware of that? Do you know that one of the most interesting, one of the most interesting races in the world, uh, and I'm talking about an automotive race, a, a car race, is a race that is held in Europe every year, and it's the slow race. In other words, the prize goes to the car that, that goes over a measured course. I think they have a half mile, if I'm not mistaken, and it's, a not, it's not a circular track. It's a straight half mile. And the prize goes to the, to the car that covers the half mile at the slowest rate of speed without the engine ever once stopping and without the car ever once stopping. In other words, it has to continuously roll at this slow speed. Uh, I believe the world's record, now I don't want to be pushed on this, uh, the world's record for the slowest mile is a guy covered a slow mile, a mile in something like 27 hours, if you can believe it. Uh, and that is a test, that is a real test of an automobile. And if you want to test the Rover 2000 TC, you ought to test this car just rolling, barely moving through traffic. And you will see what kind, of a, uh, what kind of an engineering job has been done on this automobile. It's one of the most advanced cars in the world. And as a matter of fact, it's generally considered to be about 10 to 12 years ahead 
of anything that's on the production market today. This is the Rover 2000 TC. And then after you try it at that speed, you ought to try this car at, say, 90 miles an hour, if you can get somewhere where you can get away with it, and see what this thing will do as far as cornering and stopping. By the way, disc brakes all the way around, Mario, in case you're interested. Uh, you ought to try torsion bar suspension, the whole thing, you know, and see how this thing corners at 90 compared with anything else you've ever driven. This is as close to a true sports car as you'll ever come in a production sedan, four-seater sedan, beautiful car. And if you'd like to see pictures of it, you send me your name and address to Rober here. Now, you see, if you were listening to me on a good receiver, it would have sounded as if I had said Rover. But that cheap piece of junk you're listening to me on has, has given you the idea it's Rover. So if you persist in that illusion, we'll honor it. Uh, send your name and address to R-O-B-E-R, -E Rover, here at W-O-R, and uh, we'll send along a uh, picture of this thing. And uh, my name is Tab Hunter. We'll send you a picture of this. It's pretty doggone good, I'll tell you that. And there ain't many things that are pretty doggone good in this scene. You know, <laughs> there's only two kinds of people. I must go back to this. Oh, one more note. Oh, yes, don't forget now. We're going to be live as a big, fat, speckled, big you know what a bird uh, down at the limelight tomorrow, <laughs> tomorrow night from 10.30 until midnight. And I want to say this, that uh, I, I have yet barely recovered from the wild New Year's Eve we had down there this past weekend at the limelight. I mean, it was terrible. It was it's truly sickening. I say that a man of, of good taste and discretion would have been sickened unto death by that orgiastic scene that occurred down there this past Saturday in otherwise normal and sane people. As a matter of fact, I, I, uh, I don't even know whether I want to go back there this week. It's such an awful scene. I mean, people running around with paper hats and throwing confetti into each other's ears and yelling and screaming with the horns and drinking champagne and falling down. You could hear girdles creaking. It was sickening. Sickening. One old lady hollered whoopee so loud her denture went about 40 feet in the air and landed back at the bar. It was awful. And you see all kinds of things. And, uh, well, I, I'm not, uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty broad-minded. As a matter of fact, <laughs> you, can, uh, you can define that any way you want. Some people just got one thing on their mind. And then others got maybe two things on their mind, but they're closely related. However, uh, nevertheless, I'm fairly broad-minded, but that scene was sickening. And that uh, we hope to uh, recover completely tomorrow night at the limelight. I'm going to do my special uh, post-New Year's Eve purification show. I'm going to do a very special type of show down there this way. Uh, you see, part of my, uh, my, my uh, resolutions for this coming year, I'm going to go straight. Uh, I'm absolutely going to straighten up. Uh, for years, you know, uh, salesmen have been coming down and looking into my office here at WOR, and they look at me with a long look. And, and, uh, John Diatolo, oh, you know, guys, deep thinkers around here come around. They look in, and, and uh, the word on the 23rd floor is, when is that klutz ever going to straighten up? Well, I've, I've picked 1967 as the year to do it. So uh, what I'm going to do uh, tomorrow night at the limelight, I'm going to tell a lot of snappers, you know, one-line jokes. Uh, the, uh, the Bob Hope type thing, you know. I'm going to open up and say, this is Gene Shepard broadcasting from the line, Hype Shepard. And, uh, and uh, I'm going to dedicate the show to the armed forces. We'll do something like that, you know. And, and then and I'll come on. I'll open the show with, uh, you know, a funny thing happened to me coming out of the studio tonight. And I'll start the show that way. In other words, I'm going to go straight. And I'm, when, when it's going to be comedy, I'm going to let you know it's comedy. And, you know, another stuff. 
And I'm going to give you the time a lot. I, I think that's very important when you're doing a radio show, to give the time. Don't you agree? The time is necessary in any radio show. Don't ask me why. I don't know why. For kind of who knows why. And even the guy that sits out there and looks at his watch every eight and a half seconds when Cousin Brucey or Uncle Charlie keeps yelling at him that it's ten seconds have passed, you know, since he looked at his watch. This goes on and on. And I'll give you the weather all the time. I think that's very important. And I think another thing that I ought to do, I think beginning, uh, beginning uh, next week, and this is Friday, I think beginning Monday, instead of coming out and making all these snide rotten remarks about the world, you know how it is. What are you, you going to do when you're born a sorehead? You die a sorehead. What are you going to do, you know? Instead of coming around doing that kind of stuff, I'm going to take a page out of John Gambling's book. I'm going to be cheerful. And I'm going to say funny things to Peter Roberts. If I can get somebody to laugh at my jokes, I'll get Peter Roberts in. And uh, I think another thing I should do, uh, I should give you headlines every couple of minutes, like 30-second headlines, you know. It's still going on in Vietnam. And now the weather. Uh, that's another thing, the weather. I'm going to continue to give you the weather. And I think also I should concentrate a little more on Julie Andrews. Don't you think that? Now, she's one of the great women of the 20th century, Julie Andrews. And uh, I'll have, you know, Sound of Music, I'll play a few selections of that every night. I get Montavani's orchestra to do selections from Richard Rogers, And the retrospective Mary Martin Appreciation Night could be kind of nice here at this hour, wouldn't it? And uh, even, you know, one of, one of the, uh, one of the uh, right thinkers around here suggested that I should play a few selected rock and roll tunes every night, you know, to kind of break the public. <laughs> How would you like that? Do you think I'd come like that? Do you think I'd like that? You know, uh, do a Rolling Stone appreciation night. You know, he says, "Look, Shep, why don't you get rid of all that Camus stuff? Why don't you put on what's really happening, baby?" I mean, you know, like, uh, uh, like uh, Snoopy meets the Red Baron, all that kind of stuff. This, this is a. <laughs> oh man, where is it going? But uh, I, I believe that tomorrow night at the limelight, we're going to straighten that all up. Now, Lee, don't don't uh, let me forget to go down to the line. Would you bring that bottle of uh, lilac water that I've got down there so that I can sprinkle that over the audience before we get the show underway? And uh, I'm also going to open the show tomorrow night by reciting my famous uh, version of Trees. I do Trees very well. You know, um, you know Joyce Kilmer's Trees? You know, we see, I, I'll tell you, uh, uh, the reason that I'm not singing the lyrics is that the lyrics I know are so dirty that it would be totally impossible for me to get away with it, you know. They say that, what, quack, only make up, quack, quack, tree, la-ta-ra-ta-ta. I'll do that tomorrow night. Uh, that's before the show, and I will appear with that beautiful... I have a, I have a little garland of uh, plastic laurel leaves that I wear in my hair and a robin's nest that comes out of one ear. It's a beautiful thing. I did it in New Faces. Great thing, you know. Me and little Joey Carter, he played, he played the violin, and I did a tap dance. Great number. And Abba Bogan had this 127-piece orchestra, and they played God Bless America behind us. Great, great fit. Now, uh... <laughs> You know, uh, there's only, there's a, you know, we have to get back here because I, I can see that the, that the walls are glowing with the, the, the Friday the 13th calls. I don't know what it is. Why are, people, why are people afraid of 13? I mean, what is the derivation of this fear of various numbers? 
Uh, some people, for example, fear the number three. And other people are attracted to the number three. Do you know that the, the psychologists who are giving various types of tests, have you ever seen any of the numerical selection tests in which uh, they can tell something about a person by the numbers he automatically selects? So if they say to you, uh, pick a number from uh, one to ten, well, they, they can pick a percentile of this. You know, if, you, if they ask that question to say, uh, oh, 150 people, and they can take an absolute pretty pretty accurate percentile reading on what, uh, say, uh, 74 people will say one number. Uh, 36 people, on an average, will say another number. Very few people will take certain numbers between 1 and 10. A tiny, comparatively small percentage of people will select certain numbers. Nobody quite knows why this is, either. There's been a lot of theories about it, but nobody quite knows. Now, if I were to say to you, now, 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 here, let's, let's run a test. Now, there are three of you in the control room. Now, now, have all of you got a pencil? Okay, now, now, get a pencil and a piece of paper. I'm going to, I'm going to arrange a little test here. Now, all right, now, I want, of you three, I want the first number that comes to your mind. Pick a number from one to five. From one to five. Say, she picked seven. All right. Okay, see, baby, that's, that's what's known as jumping the gun in psychiatric circles. <laughs> now, seriously, now you're out. Now, all right, you two guys, pick a number from one to five. All right, now, now show me what number you've picked. I can't see yours, Mario. You wrote yours out. I can't read that little writing there. All right, okay, now let's see yours. Very interesting. Do you know that the few people out of... Now, see, I learned something right there about you, Mary. You know, that tells something. Now, now, Doug in the control room, his interest is largely in electronics. Uh, you're an engineer type. You really are. And the engineer type has a methodical mind. And he thinks fairly conventionally. Yes, he does. Now, that's different from a, a research experimenter. Now, do you notice that, that Mario here, Mario's the kind of guy who, uh, when he goes out to buy a car, he does not buy a four-door sedan. He gets a two-seater type, spider division. And, uh, yeah, and, and when he thinks of uh, most guys, if they're given their choice of, uh, now let's build with a Y, spider division, meaning a, meaning a uh, semi-racing type automobile. Now, uh, Mario picked number four. You know, that very few people out of, out of, comparatively, very few people out of 50 asked would pick number four. Most people pick three. You see? Most people, aren't you, aren't you sorry that you jumped the gun now? All right, see? Now, there's always somebody who says, oh, I know what the question is, and starts writing it down, and uh, they wind up thrown over the cliff. But the... Now, now, why 13? Well, there's been a lot of arguments about this. Now, maybe perhaps it's this. But given, given 1 to 3, uh, the figure 1 has always had odd connotations. Some numbers have good connotations to people. Now, for example, 7 is quite often called a lucky number to people. 7 is a lucky number. No one quite knows why this is. And there are, oh, there are many different... Uh, uh, many different myths and circumstantial pieces of evidence about this whole business of numbers. And, and in fact, almost all the 
uh, horse-playing, quote, systems are based on various superstitions relating to different combinations of numbers. Uh, no one quite knows, for example, when you're playing craps, why certain numbers will come up more than others, and yet they do. They really do. They can prove statistically that certain numbers are harder to make than others. Now, why is this? In other words, it's easier to throw seven on a pair of dice than it is, say, to throw uh, boxcars. That's a fact. <laughs> Any good old crap player will tell you that the odds go with this. Now, uh, there, there are, now, now, on the other hand, why people pick numbers? Now, let's take the, the number 13 now again. Now, 13, 13 always has, has to, and has had uh, alternately good or evil connotations, most generally evil. Now, there are many guys who think that they'll attain good in their life by going against an obvious evil. In other words, they are almost augmenting the idea that, say, 13 is evil by making a big thing of wearing 13 if they're, say, a pitcher for the Mets, or, uh, which is bad enough luck there already, you know. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, I remember, I remember there was one pitcher, for example, uh, who pitched with the Chicago Cubs when I was a kid. And this is the kind of thing that, that you know, really impresses you when you're a kid, you know. Uh, one day I'm listening to the ball game, and uh, the announcer comes on. He says, you know, he says, uh, he says uh, this is the first guy that I ever saw that uh, regularly wears number 13. He makes a big issue. But, in fact, he said that, that he would not, he would not appear in a ball game with the Chicago Cubs. He had signed his contract, you see, and he'd been traded from one club to another. And he would not just would not pitch. He would not go out on the diamond unless they gave him that number. He had to have number 13. And if he didn't get number 13, he refused to pitch. And so here he is out there, and he's pitching, and the, the announcer is talking about it. He says, you know, that's a funny thing about Claude. He says he would not pitch unless he got number 13. And I'm thinking, gee, maybe there's something to this. And at the same time as I'm thinking this, Claude is getting bombed out. You know, they just scored eight runs off of him, and it's only the second inning. And I'm thinking, well, he better change his number. <laughs> but no, he did not change his number. In fact, he's right back there four days later getting bombed out again, you know. And he persisted with this. And uh, No, this continued on and on and on until one day he was traded to Moline in the Free Eye League, and that was the end of it. I guess he's still wearing 13, wherever the devil he is right now. But he persisted in that number. Now, uh, <laughs> this... this, uh, this kind of thing. Now, I'm not saying that, now, had he changed to, say, number 24, he would have still been in the big leagues. I doubt it very much. But nevertheless, he hung to number 13 in spite of the fact that they were clobbering him and as they were pinning his ears back every time he walked out there. And it was, you know, in very strange ways. Like, he would, he would throw a, a fastball down the pipe, and somebody would hit a high pop-up, and Zeke Benura would catch it in the teeth. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Well, of course, Zeke always caught him in the teeth, so it really didn't matter one way or the other, so that was not bad luck. It was just the way it was. However, these, uh, these, these, uh, these numbers and the, uh, you know, the, the ins and outs. Now, I'll tell you what number I wore. I had two numbers uh, when I played various athletics. Uh, the, the number I wore, what number do you think I wore as a football player? Just looking at the, uh, the, the general confirmation that I have as a build type. Huh? 60? You're very close. Excellent. You spotted. Ooh, you were 65. Yep. That's right. 
Uh, I was a defensive back a lot and uh, worked, worked mostly on defense and occasionally on offense, but mostly defense. 65. Now, I played basketball. Uh, not very well, but I played basketball. What number did I wear as, as a basketballer? Let's see if you can guess this one. Let's put it this way. It was under 20. 12? That's close enough, Mario. 18? That's even closer. I wore 16. Yeah. And uh, now, now I, I began to have a peculiar attachment for these numbers. Strange attachment. And so uh, uh, whenever, I, whenever I had, the, somehow, whenever I see number 16, there's a little feeling of, uh, you know, this is a friendly old number. It's like seeing your name, curious way. But, however, I have never had any particular hang-up about lucky numbers. This has never been a thing with me. And yet millions and millions of people carry this peculiar thing on. Now, the reason we're talking about this, this is the 13th, Friday the 13th. And do you know that there are actually serious people? Do you know that many apartment houses, including the apartment house I live in, does not have a 13th floor? Now, that's how widespread this belief is. Now, can you imagine a great big official-looking building? You know, it's, it's owned by some official-looking guy who wears Hamburg hats. In fact, it's owned by an official-looking holding company. You know, there's 6,000 people in this company, and they own 422 buildings in 84 states. You know, that kind of thing. They are so official that not one building that they own anywhere all over the country has a 13th floor including even buildings that have just exactly 13 floors. So you go to the top of that building, it winds up that you're on the 14th floor, or it winds up that you're on the 12th floor. Generally, uh, in this case, uh, what they do is call the basement the first floor. And then they call the first floor the second floor. Now, in the case of uh, the building that I live in, they simply jump from 12 to 14. They don't even bother to apologize. You know, you, just, you, don't even, you know when you're, go you're on the elevator and you keep going up and... And uh, first you're, you know, one, two, three, you see the big numbers going by, and you see 12, and then it goes 14, just like that. And one day I, I asked one of the elevator operators, I said, what, what, I said, what ever happened to 13? You know what they do? Is there a bunch of drinkers on that floor or something? They, they finally have to do away with that floor? What happened to 13? And he looked at me, and he says, well, he says sir, he says, uh, I just, uh, they, they have no 13 floors. There's no 13 floors. He's a little scared, you know. His face is white, ashen. And he says, uh, no, no, I have no 13 floors in any of the buildings that I ever work in. Implying, of course, that the kind of slobs that I hang around with and the kind of slobby buildings I've lived in, they would have 13 floors that have garbage in the hallways, you know, and rats running up and down the elevator shaft and all that stuff, and people jumping out of windows, you know, and gunshots in the lobby and that whole jazz. But the, the 13 floors? No, no, absolutely not. Now that, this is in a so-called enlightened period in time. Now, now uh, the other night, for example, I'm watching a movie about werewolves and about vampires. Now, do you know how widespread the belief is, even to this day, 1967, in werewolves and vampires? It, it, oh, yeah. The other night, as a matter of fact, Lee, who works with me, the other night, we're, we're down at the limelight, you know? And uh, she walks right up to Big Fat Mike, who was the... Uh, who was the night the manager. He's the, you know, the big shot down there. And he looks a little bit like the kind of character that William Bendix used to play, you know, a very solid-looking citizen, big fat Mike. And all of a sudden, Lee shot out her left hand, and she says, horns, horns, with her two fingers extended. Mike got pale. He toppled over and hid under, under the table, and he started to 
He started to mumble some Italian incantation in Patatissimo Farina, a case of Tabolamacio, Tabiella, and he's gone, he's crossing himself, and he's getting rid of the horns. But if, if he hadn't done that, forget it, 1967 would have been entirely down the drain, if not the next 10 years. Well, I'll tell you, as a matter of fact, Lee in here ruined the career of Joe Pepitone. You know that Joe Pepitone would have been a 350 hitter. If not the second year he came up, Lee put the permanent horns on him. And if you're an Italian, I mean, that's going to end the whole scene right there. He's never been able to shake it. He's tried everything. He's cut his hair. He wears his shoes backwards. He puts his socks out sideways at night facing east, you know, so that the evil pours out. So he's tried the whole bit. Friday the 13th, that's right here, you know. So hang in. Don't move. Sit close. Hang out to the armrests of your chair. Don't let anybody move you. It's Friday the 13th. We'll be at the limelight tomorrow night. See if you can stay at your radio till then. Tomorrow night from 10.30 until midnight. Keep your knees loose. Keep your hands extended in the air. And make sure that the evil spirits do not own. <laughs>